Hi, and welcome to the second of our Evidence Manifesto podcasts, where the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine at Oxford University and the BMJ are asking, what are the problems with medical evidence? And can we fix them? I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and in this second discussion, Carl Hennigan, Director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine at Oxford, and I went to Nottingham University to find out what the people who create the bread and butter of EBM, randomised controlled trials, think about the issues with evidence synthesis and how the information they create is used in practice. Firstly, you're going to hear from Lila Dooley. She's director of the Nottingham Clinical Trials Unit. And she told Carl Hennigan about her difficulty in knowing what research to actually pursue. We don't have a system for prioritising. I mean, the biggest bane of my life since I started in the trials unit is how do you decide which trials to do? So I run a business, I basically run a small business, medium-sized business because we work only on research grants. Yeah. So we have to prioritise the ones that we think we can do and get the money for. There, there's no system for prioritising what gets done. And NIHR is trying to encourage the huge community with the commissioned arms and the theme mm-hmm. calls. Yeah. They're not the problem, because very few researchers come to us for those. Everyone thinks they've got the best idea, and it's their idea mm. that we should be doing. Mm. And we've got a big mental health institute here. Mental health is a big problem. I've, as director of a clinical trials unit, have got no way of working out how should we prioritise which trials we do. Because we're the gatekeepers for yeah. the big trials. So that's like the fundamental sort of structure of academic freedom means that as academics we can academics choose, should just do what they want choose what we, exactly. we will find the best things to do but that which has some merit but is presenting us with some problems in the nhs it well it's perverse it's creating perverse mm. drivers being devil's advocate if you didn't have that you wouldn't have discovered helicobacter because it, they got originally rejected, didn't they? Yeah. And DNA. I mean, that's yeah, the, yeah, I knew yeah, I, would, yeah. I was expecting something. I was in my head as I said it. Yeah. So I'm not saying it should yeah. all be, but channeling, but having a much more, we talked to you talked about transparency yeah. as we were chatting informally, how there is no, there's still, we're struggling to get transparency about how, why we choose to do what we do. Nadine Qureshi, GP and clinical professor at Nottingham, pointing out the case of H. pylori there. The conversation turned to how trials are designed. Laila Dooley asking if the big trials, the big multi-centre trials, are always the right way of doing it. You know, I run a clinical trials unit and we're designed to do large multi-centre trials. But you don't need a CTU to do all the smaller studies. What you need is a good access to people who can teach you to do it well and teach you to ask the right questions. So we was on the way and I met with Neil about, you know, looking at some of the work you're doing with trying to identify people with liver problems in the community. And if you want to do that tomorrow in 10 practices, you can start tomorrow. If you want to do that in five, if you want to do that in three, you can do it to which practice you can pick and choose what you want. But as soon as you say, I want to randomise five, then you've added in half a million pound costs and 200 days of preparation to do what you could have done tomorrow anyhow. So what is it about that we can think about or then structures that we could improve 
the situation to think differently, particularly about implementation research, where we want mm. to do something, but we're having great difficulty understanding what's going on. So this is a problem I um, implicitly have with the research I do, which is biomarkers, which is using novel technologies, which has a finite period. So when you and I sat down to write the randomised controlled trial, we realised that trial runs for five years. The results then takes a, you know, a year or what to publish and analyse. And then by the time it gets into clinical practice, it's you know, even longer down the line. You know, the average time it takes from an innovation to get into clinical practice, according to NHS England, is 17 years. And, th and, that, and that's just too long. And so actually by the time that randomised controlled trial happens on a biomarkers, it's, it's outdated and new yeah. technologies can come along. So how do we implement and yet iterate and get good quality evidence at the same time has been a major challenge. That's Neil Gua, Clinical Associate Professor in Hepatology. And Hugh Williams, Professor of Dermoepidemiology and co-director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Dermatology, picked up on Neil's point. Could I make a comment, Carl, for, from, uh, on the topic of trials and indeed systematic reviews from my world of dermatology? One of the things I've often called for is less research. Mm. I mean, everyone says that vacuous phrase, more research is needed, mm -hmm. Emmerin. <laughs> and I've always said less research is needed, but more needed research is needed. And I, I even remember saying if I had a magic wand, I'd just stop all clinical trials in dermatology. Just stop. Yeah. Just review what's been done. Um, think very carefully about co-designing research with the people who matter most patients and indeed people who put things into practice think about the outcomes put the research in context so so my appeal would be and it's very difficult i mean how do i stop you know uh, i'm just thinking of the next update now of the vitiligo systematic review or indeed systematic reviews in general there are sausage machines out there producing you know systematic yeah. reviews they've searched two databases all english language and it gets published there are 236 dermatology journals there's no it's difficult not to get it published these days and you've got all this noise and i think it was easier uh, you know 30 40 years back but the the volume there's so much distraction and noise there do you think it was easier though because it comes back to this priority issue that 30 or 40 years ago people would understand okay we need to answer this question about aspirin and heart attack that's what we're going to focus on whereas now the focus sometimes I look at like you say in the Cochrane reviews I'm like who cares about the answer for this do we really need to know the answer about this right now and is it not that we should be focusing on some really important mm. questions I'll yeah. give you an example yeah. I talked about the new oral anticoagulants they could be one of the most important developments that we've seen in the last 10 years. They also could be a complete dud and harm people. Mm -hmm. And what GPs, all the smart GPs are doing, we're just sat back going, I'm not quite sure, we'll just let's yeah. see how the evidence plays out. Yeah. That, yeah. And the question is, to me, is nobody's going to do yeah. an independent replication trial of that drug, yeah. but it could affect a million people. Today, the note came up because I was with one of the GPs in my practice said, I'm not going to, I don't trust this. I just don't trust this. I'm not going to give it to my patients because I've had X, Y incidents where someone's got severe renal failure from it. So it's anecdotal evidence. What you really need is to be able to search on this, um, renal failure and NOACs. Mm. How strong is the evidence? You don't, it, it's not si just systematic reviews, it's just what's the level of intelligence in that area. Yeah. And for, you know, like he had, he had that statement and I hadn't got a clue. 
But it's interesting yeah. to say with no accidents, yeah. that's a really good point, Carl, because actually... Yeah, you look at the trials where you've got Noak against Warfarin, and then you look at the Warfarin arm, and you think, you know, they've not got the. the this is not the, the, the Warfarin arm. They've not. Anyway, let's say in the Warfarin arm, they've not gone to the attention to detail in making sure that that patients yeah, yeah, are yeah, yeah. Yeah, so really well controlled. You know, compared with the the, the yeah. Noak arm, and and it it just leaves you when you mm. read it with that uncertainty, thinking, but say they'd done a trial. Where they've got Noak, which is what you're probably talking, yeah. Noak against, you know, well control, you know, or, or reasonably controlled uh, mm. patients on warfarin. Because in the real world, then obviously not everyone's going to be perfectly controlled. And that's in a sense what you're saying is that actually, that ideally we need to be replicating that uh, because it's a, such a it's yeah. such, such a massive importance to patients and economically as well. Research is only useful if it makes its way into the head of other researchers and ultimately into practice. We spent some time talking about how that actually happens and the problems that and the problem of getting clinical trial results out into the public domain. Publishing in the Lancet is great for your CV but lousy for dissemination for most things. Because if it doesn't get into the, if you're talking about, you know, people coming into your general practice, if they've read it in their newspaper, well, I show my age today, they see it on their phone or read it on their devices, they're much more likely to understand. So there are actually, the lay media just picks up yeah. a news story. It doesn't. And usually, uh, you get some wonder drug stories, but then yeah. lots of lots of uh, very negative. I mean, the sense about science network is yeah. fantastic isn't it because mm. they're constantly trying mm. to counteract some of that before it hits the public domain the reality of journalism though that is there's somebody sat in an office just taking a press release and turning that and tuning that out and the reality is the nottingham ctu is <laughs> spinning it in the best light for them to pick it up to make appropriateness that comes back in your news and the head of the medical sciences says, well done, today you were in the news. So it's, yeah. we're all in it together, aren't we? I, I think the journals do have something to answer for, <coughs> even the sort of big, um, most uh, sort of reputed journals. Um, I'm just thinking, for example, that the best teaching example I use of selective reporting outcome bias mm. is a study of sentinel node lymph biopsy and lymphadenectomy for malignant melanoma. This was the 10-year definitive study, mm -hmm. actually a good study, mm -hmm. very good study, well reported in the New England Journal of Medicine. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the trial registration, the primary outcome was overall survival. If you look at the main study, gone. Yeah. It's disease-specific survival and all little subgroups and things is gone there. And yeah. despite numerous letters, it was never corrected. I do think the journals are, are very worried and yeah. sensitive yeah. about correspondence like yeah. you're referring to but saying well actually this is wrong you know if you've planned to do this outcome you should report it and the fact that many of the journals have just refused to publish that or correct that to me is just wrong. So when journals ask for the protocols I'm just curious, what do they do with the protocols? Because you can notice these gaps between the published paper and the original protocol, but does it actually make a difference to their decision making? Because, for instance, the um, the study, the New England Journey Journal study, I, was it too old for the protocols to be submitted to the journal? So not all. So it's really interesting. What we found out, although all these 560 journals 
mm-hmm. endorse the consort state. Mm-hmm. Not many enforce it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the idea that there's some mandatory requirement for protocols is still not there yet because there are so many different journals. There's no mandatory requirements and each journal mm-hmm. takes it differently. Isn't, isn't there an argument to take what you said in your talk one step further? In some senses, we should almost, you know, the protocol is the registration. Mm. And then what we develop is a manual to deliver that protocol. That's a good what point. What we currently yeah. write. Because what we write in, is for ethics. We write for ethics yeah. to get through the ethics committee. Yeah. That's what the protocol mm. does. Mm. And then you do your journal article publication, which you're quite right, is usually done way down the road when you've, you're close to the end of recruitment is often the time it gets published. Well, here's an idea, and that is perhaps what is submitted to ethics committees. And I know there have been studies done in Oxford where you try to ask ethics committees for shows the protocol, and it's been declined. And you had to go to Denmark, or this is Anwen Chan's work, of course. Um, You know, that that may be a way of uh, documenting, because that's what you're... It's what I call um, placing your bet, isn't it? Placing your bet and show us your hand. Placing your bet, show us your hand. In a way, you should... And if we talk about the ethics around trials, I feel really strongly that a basic principle should be that the trial is in the public domain if we're mm. recruiting humans mm. to mm. studies. Mm. Um, I have a personal anecdote. Uh, the one time I agreed to be in a research study, I asked to see the protocol before signing the consent form. And there was a long delay, but I eventually got the protocol. Because yeah. it, was, it was not freely available. So I mean, you know, if we're mm-hmm. looking at what's the framework for doing mm-hmm. trials and opening mm-hmm. to scrutiny and transparency, mm-hmm. surely any trial couldn't mm-hmm. the HD, if the funder demanded it how all it would happen, so they think, should all be yeah. in the public domain, shouldn't mm-hmm. they? I think the idea of time stamping it, your point about placing a bet's really a good analogy because it almost feels like if you were at Cheltenham Races today, which is I listened on the way up here, is You'd have the opportunity in research to play place your bet after the race has finished, <laughs> wouldn't you? Yeah, exactly. And you'd be like, thank yes, you very yeah. much. That's exactly what we're saying. Whereas what you do is the bookmaker says, here's the time and stamp. That's and you've it. got to have it before the race yeah, starts. And if it. you're a second after... Now, the you're public out. will understand that. Yeah. That's and amazing. I think that's a good way of thinking of it. At the moment, the problem is what we see a lot of is you've got the betting slip with no time and date on. So, exactly. so, you're not, so they say it's a protocol, but you're like, we don't know what it is. We must have all had that experience of peer-reviewing something where you're sent, you look, and there's like three different versions of the protocol. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how do, you, it's, what, how do you peer-review against that? It's a good point. Perhaps we should define the, the protocol stamp. Yes. What, just, what is the protocol and when? When, when yeah. is that an acceptable yeah. record of placing your bet? You have to be realistic as well. If you fix a time point, which I think I agree with, but there should be an opportunity... You might start a trial and realise crumbs. This is not what we you, what we anticipate. But if you do modify, it should be in the public field. In fact, hold back publishing yeah. them because they know that they'll have to tweak the protocol yeah. a bit because of the right. practical things. Which yeah. is my point about that's the manual yeah. bit mm-hmm. that holds mm-hmm. it back. Mm-hmm. Whereas the core elements, mm-hmm. of what's the pico, mm-hmm. is what should be fixed in time. Mm-hmm. What's the question mm-hmm. you're answering? Mm-hmm. So. A couple of clear actions we can do there. Firstly, define a protocol. Have it state the question and what's being measured, but maybe not the minutiae of implementation. Crucially, it should be timestamped to stop outcome switching. The second thing we can do is make the documentation, which ethics committees review, publicly available 
especially if we want the public to take part in trials. Throughout the discussion, we were thinking about the implementation of research, and one of the ways in which that's done is through guidelines. Made by NICE or SIGN in the UK, or different groups around the world, here, the people who understand the new evidence being generated discuss what evidence is actually usefully included in guidelines and what isn't. As you were talking, it, it occurred to me that um, one of the, the downfalls of guidelines is trying to be comprehensive. Yeah. <laughs> and, and as you say, you know, maybe 20% or even less, 5% is pretty good. And, and if you just concentrated on do these things and do them well with these provisors, there's a bit in the middle where actually we, we're not quite sure there's a bit of evidence. And the rest of it is just use good clinical patient-focused judgment, I, I think. Because mm -hmm. when I try to look at the guidelines and referee them for mm -hmm. our association, they go into great detail, but most of it's level C evidence. Yeah. I think, well, well, hang on. I, I'm being audited nationally on some of these things yes, now. And they, some of them, to me, seem like a load of rubbish, whereas mm -hmm. there are some things that are relatively certain which you could stick to. I mean, isn't it just to be devil's advocate for a bit? Isn't it that we've forgotten a guideline should be a guideline, not something mm -hmm. that you're audited against? In our, in my profession, the most popular. Have you heard of the Green Top guidelines in Oxford yeah. Can you just tell us smash. what the green top are? Most people won't know. Yeah, so they're quick. This was long before the big nice was ever mm -hmm. around. Mm -hmm. The Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists have produced what they call green top guidelines, and and they're really popular with clinicians. And they're most popular where there is no evidence, because that's where a bit of guidance, which is what a guideline should be, is seen as really helpful. When you're in busy clinical practice, if there's a catastrophe on labour ward and there's no evidence, what's the sort of professional consensus would be sensible to do? And actually where the evidence is strong, you don't need a guideline, you just follow mm. the evidence. Or mm. you have a guideline on how to follow it if it's difficult. Mm -hmm. I do see where you're And I would say as a GP, I do find guidelines helpful so there's all the caveats over the evidence that goes into the gu the guidelines they can be helpful i've used used liver function tests as an example you know what do i do with these yeah, deranged liver function tests you know <laughs> and you know we've got a flow chart now and i'm sure there's not rct guidelines to be guidelines to say that the levels that you've chosen in terms of what the alt should be for me to then go on and then do a, do a particular set of, of tests is is um you know, it's, it's backed up by RCT evidence, but actually, it's a feels a damn sight better than than where I was before in terms of I don't know what I'm supposed to do, and I'm not don't feel I should be referring all these people to a hepatologist. So let's throw one open to the room. The big controversy that uh, led to almost the Academy of Medical Sciences and the CMO saying we need to understand the patients are, are sort of muddled in this. Is Nice comes out with the guideline and says everybody with a cardiovascular risk of ten percent should be offered statin treatment. And according yeah. to that rule, you should, yeah, but the if, guideline says do it. Yeah, but the problem is, and I was on that guideline, but I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to... So you're to blame. No, but the problem with it is, too much weight's been put on the economic modelling. And there should be a rule that you shouldn't use poor quality evidence in an economic model. It's just... Yeah, yeah. And if, if you're relying on consensus, a government warning should be given. Because the consensus in the panel of 12 wise men... 
And it's it has to be biased when people are or there. Hmm? Yeah. Or women. Well, women. Yeah, yeah. I'm just using the movie scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so it's actually for me. It's if you look at the way that's been driven. I don't know about other places. Is that 10% was purely on an economic model, which came from evidence that was majority evidence was observational evidence, and that's I think that's where the flaw is. Really, is actually we've gone down this train. And people aren't thinking where we should be stopping and going down another route. And it's it's actually, I, for nights, I think the biggest issue is they need to rethink how they do the modelling with the evidence. Now, we couldn't have a discussion about running clinical trials without talking about biases. Where they perhaps creep in unexpectedly and where they're deliberately used by industry to stack the deck towards a favourable outcome. Carl Hennigan kicked that off with talk of effect sizes. What we're seeing is smaller and smaller effect sizes, aren't we, over time? Yeah. So that means any bias that's introduced will overcome that effect size pretty easily. So we've got to have trials with minimal amounts of bias. However, we've created systems like GRADE that have basically said it's down to three or four things, which are quite easy to fix. And then what occurs is another problem over here. So you might say, look, we reported this trial, the allocation consumed was wonderful, and then you look at the measure, surrogate measure, which has been switched, and you go, oh my God, we introduced a bias in that way. And it's almost like if you try to fix one problem, another problem emerges. That's the problem as I see it. It's almost, I can't think, it's almost like unstoppable in a competitive commercial world. But how do we do that sort of incentivize, making sure these 30, 40, I think it's quite a number of biases we say, this is any what introduction of any of one of these is going to make a difficulty for us to understand what's going on. I can respond to that because I share, I think, what you're getting at are similar concerns about the, um, if you like, the limitations in terms of time of, for example, risk of bias tool. I mean, I'm, I'm very aware that uh, industry colleagues, for example, I mean, they're very smart. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, it's very easy now on a Cochrane review to get all your industry studies as having very low risk of bias yes. because they're very smart at describing concealment of allocation and how randomization was done and something explicit about bias. They're very good at writing that. But what, what worries me, and this is where the good nose comes into it, um, is this sort of tacit knowledge of the 50 different ways, <laughs> the shed load of ways that you, you can you can see and little subtle things and, and those do make a difference when they add up. So, so, and, and in a way, the sort of independent sort of bona fide people haven't quite caught up. They still have unclear risk of bias for several items and yet actually it could be a sparkling gem but you don't know because it's not been reported. So I am scared that what we sort of, the mantra of the risk of bias and of course, describing concealment of allocation is very very important mm. and how you did it but it's just the start it's just it? the start and yes. um, I don't think it's enough and I think there's a differential between mm. uh, and people not having the sort of real nose if you like to sniff out the different ways in which the uh, perhaps the truth has been distorted in some way and policy and commissioning they're basically saying, well, randomised trials are all great, but they take 17 years for us to know what's going on. And we've got a problem tomorrow we've got to fix. And so we're saying, let's do away with randomised trials and let's use observational data. And that's what we're going to use now to fix healthcare. And arriving is big data that's going to solve all the problems. 
and we was at the Far Institute and they were telling us how this is going to be the future. Mm -hmm. So we've got another competing interest. So we've said trials, okay, they've got all them biases mm. and by rubbishing them somehow, then in the back door is coming all the observational data. Which has got even bigger biases. Yeah. yeah. And we're talking, you're right, we're looking for marginal increases now, largely. Isn't it even worse than that, that actually well-designed prospective cohorts are out and using routine data is coming in? Why should we, yeah. why should we design a cohort? We'll just look at the routine data. Correct. And I think, yeah, I look at it this way. I try and say to people, when we wanted to discover that smoking killed cancer, which is the largest effect I've mm. ever seen, we needed a 50-year prospective study with 99.8% follow-up of 50,000 doctors. Now we just look at the CPRD or a database yeah. and say, this is what we should infer yeah. from that. And it's... And it's the, I, I get quite frightened looking at all the risk prediction models. There's a level of imputation that goes into these models now. Yeah, yeah, and it's just that gone, the, and a lot of these bottles are created from routine data, mm. and it's, I'm not comfortable with that. I don't know about anyone else. I'm not comfortable that we're actually deciding on fever scores or if someone's got angina based on these models created from routine data or poor quality um, observational data, and we're making decisions based on those. Again, another action point: thinking about the evidence that's used to create models. We're almost at the end of this podcast, but I'll leave the final and perhaps most important point to Hugh Williams. I'm not sure if I know the solution, but for me, I think the most important thing with evidence-based medicine is to bring patients right to the centre. So, so, you know, that hierarchy, that pyramid that we've got, I'd like to see a circle in the middle with the word patient in front of me. And I, I don't sound sort of, no, no, no. Um, uh, sort of a, a bit uh, crass, but actually I, I think that's what it's out. And and he said, but how do you get that across in a really simple, understandable message to the public? And I, I think I might have said it before, uh, no evidence without patience. One argument how to fix all of this is that you, we swap roles and you have patients deciding on the questions and coming yeah. to us. Yeah. Instead yeah. of clinic, oh, researchers yeah. coming yeah. to a clinical trials unit, you have the patients. Yeah going out to yeah. get the researchers who would then answer the questions that they want. And, and in fact, that's what's happening with practicing partnerships, isn't it? We've got one on eczema, the top one is an allergy test, which I've avoided for the mm. last 30 years because they're too difficult, but yeah. they're telling us to get on with it, so we're going to get on with mm. it. So we don't like it, but, you know, that's what they want, so let's, let's mm. do it. We think that this might be one of the main causes of problems in the design of evidence and the implementation of that evidence base. And you'll hear more about patients in our next discussion, which is on policy. We went to Scotland to talk to the team who advised Catherine Calderwood. Now, she's the chief medical officer for the Scottish government and has started a campaign for realistic medicine, which is trying to address many of the same things as our evidence manifesto. In this podcast, thanks to Lila Dooley, Hugh Williams, Tony Avery, Nadim Qureshi and Neil Guha, all working at Nottingham University. If you want to find more about what we're doing here, have a look at evidencelive.org slash manifesto. Though this was started by the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine and the BMJ, we know that we don't have all of the answers and we're part of the establishment with all the implications of that. So please, do comment and join in on the discussion. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. Thanks for listening.